Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, friends. Hope you're managing to stay cool during this intense summer so far. And welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Sadly, it took the murder of George Floyd to wake us up. But it does seem that America today is paying more attention to and trying to cope with the problem of systemic racism in this country more than ever before. Looking at how the history of racism is built into almost everything we do. Yes, in police forces, but also in schools, offices, government, the military, sports, and big business, and even how an outright racist was able to take over the Oval Office. Most importantly, what can we do and what should we do about ending systemic racism? Well, for CNN's Don Lemon, today's debate about racism rekindled a passion he first felt when, as a young man, he read James Baldwin's classic, The Fire, Next Time. And now Don has challenged that passion about how Americans must accept the reality of racism and work together to end it into his own book, This is the Fire. Don Lemon took time out from prepping for Don Lemon tonight on CNN to join us here on the Bill Press Pod. Hello, Don Lemon. Good to see you. Congratulations on the new book. Oh, thank you, Bill. How are you? Uh, we're doing great. Thank you. I've been honored to be uh, a guest on your show uh, several times, so I'm very excited tonight to have you as my guest. We could turn the tables a, a little bit, right? I hope I do well and live up to uh, your expectation. <laughs> no problem. You're going to pay me back for all of the bad experiences you had on my show, right? <laughs> I love being there. So, Don, <laughs> look at the title, right? And the way you start the book, this is the fire, and you start the book with a letter to your nephew, certainly, um, clearly, a link to the great James Baldwin. It was mm -hmm. such a, an inspiration in your life. What do you see as the connection between what Baldwin said in 1963 and what you are telling your friends in, in 2021? I think the only real difference is that, that, that you know, obviously there has been progress, right, when it comes to the number of people who are able to be professionals and who um, who have a sense of uh, owning their own lives. I mean, I think that's uh, that goes without saying, meaning African-Americans and, and mm -hmm. people of color. But I think the big difference also is uh, technology and information, right? Um, so, but the through line is, is that we're still dealing with the same issues. We're still dealing with uh, police brutality, we're still dealing with uh, criminal justice, uh, racism being built into the system. We're still dealing with systemic racism, even though there are forces out there in society now and in government who are saying that there is no systemic racism. Uh, we're still dealing with people being um, placed into certain areas and housing. And, um, you know, as you know, Bill, people were set down into um, housing communities, projects, um, they're just to, to stay and they've remained there. 
So we're dealing with that in urban areas and we're dealing with the, the, the really overt racism in rural and in, especially in, I shouldn't say especially in Southern areas, but in rural areas uh, all over the country. So there's inequality, the same things, similar things that we're dealing with. Uh, and that's one of the reasons, obviously not one of the reasons, that's the reason I wrote the book. And one of the reasons I pinned that letter to my nephew so that he won't have to live in a world like that. I'm hoping that he won't have to live in the world. And, and like James Baldwin said to his nephew, paraphrasing, right? Um, don't believe what the white people say about you, right? Yeah. Uh, that's, I never do. That's, that's what you're saying to your nephew too, right? Well, I'm saying to, yes, I am saying to my nephew, don't believe what the white people say about you. But I'm also saying to my nephew that um, I'm here to tell you, because I think that um, my experience with James Baldwin and my experience may be a little bit different than James Baldwin. James Baldwin certainly had an enormous platform as a writer, uh, is a literary giant and genius. Um, and he's a maverick and a trailblazer. He's all of those things. But I, I have a little bit of a different experience. I have a different platform than, than him. Uh, and my platform is more immediate than him. Mm -hmm. So uh, in, in a time where we, I'm living in a time now where we have made progress and strides, as I said in the, answer, the previous answer before. So I'm telling my nephew that I, as, as an example, I am an example of what you can accomplish and beyond. What I want from him is that he's, he was, I want him to be able to embrace his beauty and his blackness and the full person that he is with an ease that I wasn't able to master at his age. Because had I been able to do that, I think I would be even further along and even more successful. And I would have um, been, uh, um, I would have achieved a sense of self-possession much earlier in life. And that would have not, I wouldn't have had to deal with so many issues and so many internal problems. I was with you on CNN watching uh, when you were really the dominant voice as we heard the verdict uh, for Derek Chauvin out in Minneapolis. Um, guilty on all three counts. How important was that call to our efforts to deal with systemic racism in this country? It was historic. It was how important, very simply, it was extremely important. I don't even know if I can, can quantify it uh, as to the, the, the importance. Um, because finally there was accountability. Finally, someone who was in a position of authority who was supposed to protect and serve was being held accountable uh, in, in a way that the world was able to see and where everyone was able to say, okay, finally, justice is served. So um, I, don't even, I don't even think that we know the enormity of it now. I don't think we, can, we even know the importance of it now. And I know, you know he still hasn't been sentenced as we're recording this now. Um, we don't know how long he's gonna serve, what's gonna happen with appeal, appeal and all those things. Mm -hmm. But for the moment that we're in now, it's historic, it's it feels big because it is big, and I think it changes uh, law enforcement going forward. Uh, and I remember uh, justice has served uh, the first three words, I believe, out of your mouth when uh, justice the verdict was announced. You're a smart man. <laughs> and listen, I uh, you know immediately out of that, the you know they came to me, and that's what I said. I said finally, justice uh, has been served. Right. Um, and 
that was the quote that was picked up by every major news organization, every major newspaper around the country. I was glad that that happened because I thought it was important to hear a black man say that. Because when I saw George Floyd laying on the street with the cop with his knee on his neck, uh, I saw myself, I saw my uncles, I saw my father, and I saw my nephews. And I, I didn't want my nephews to grow up in a world like that. And that was the reason that I penned the letter to him, much as James Baldwin did, and wrote this book. Uh, and then the big question, of course, is, so where do we go from here or what happens now? So I want to read a little from your letter to your nephew, where you talk about the murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm on just first page, page three. Today I heard a dying man call out to his mama, and I wept for the world that will soon belong to you. I know what comes next as surely as I know the Mississippi rolls down to the sea. The weeping passes and the rage takes hold. The rage burns out and blame begins. The blame bounces back and forth and promises are made. The promises wither and complacency returns. Mm -hmm. Do you still believe that? Uh, I do. I do. And, uh, here's a, and if I can just read the next part and I'll tell you why. And I said, and the complacency stays. It, stag it, it stagnates like a lullaby on autoplay until another man dies face down on another street in another city and the weeping begins again. I still believe that. I do think that uh, George Floyd and, and um, Derek Chauvin verdict was one part of the puzzle, one part of the equation. I think that we've got uh, a lot more of those verdicts uh, and a lot more of those court cases uh, to go before we can finally say, okay, things are starting to change. This is one thing. And as I, as, as surely as I said, as I was writing this and I said the complacency, right, um, begins and, and the complacency returns, the amount of people who believe that George Floyd was killed when it, when it first happened was drastically different than the amount of people who believed George Floyd was killed by the time the verdict came in. People had become complacent. They had become used to it. They had, they had found a way to rationalize it, his death. They had found a way to blame him rather than uh, the officer and the perpetrator. And so we have to make sure that that complacency doesn't return again. And when we start to see more police officers, more people in authority, not just police officers, but people who believe they're in authority, like uh, what happened with Trayvon Martin, like what happened with Ahmaud Arbery down in Brunswick, Georgia. More people with authority and police officers uh, held accountable for their actions. Then I will go back and say, when I wrote that book, the complacency was returning. Now I'm going to write another book because we are finally changing it and the complacency is not returning. Uh, you mentioned Trayvon Martin um, and Ahmaud Armory. Uh, when you look at um, just the names that pop up, right, of young black men killed by police officers, those two were not, but uh, killed by, as you say, people in authority, one was so-called vigilante. But we think of Michael Clark and Tamir Rice and Eric Gardner, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Andrew Brown, Jonathan Price, you talk about, all killed at the hands of white police officers. What What's behind that? Uh, you talk a little bit in your book about this police violence. It, 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 it stems from kind of the history of policing or what's behind it? 
Well, I mean, you know, as you know, Bill, the history of policing, there's two things here. The history of policing comes, that's a slave catching. Yeah. Right? right. That, was, that was the beginning of policing in this country to catch the slaves and to hold them to make sure that they, um, that the system remained in place and there, there was free labor and that free labor remained uh, so that people can, be, can make money off of it. Capitalism, capitalism, that's, that's what it was about. Uh, it is also about why you see this happening now uh, is because certain people in the society feel that they have an authority over you. Um, and when they have a gun and a badge, they, 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 that, that authority is magnified. Their feeling of that authority is magnified. And it should be because they hold your life and, your, and death in your, in your hands. But it is because I believe is that um, many police officers um, have become jaded and they don't see the people they're supposed to protect and serve as humans. They see them as criminals. They see them as problematic people. And usually anytime you have an interaction with a police officer, it's, it's problematic. You are called, you call the police officer, you call a police officer or a police officer is called to where you are because there's an issue, mm -hmm. because there's trouble, because usually because something bad is going on. So most people don't sing hallelujah when they see a police officer because usually you're involved in something that is at the worst time of your life. So I think police officers, um, and they do have a tough job, I will acknowledge that, but they don't see people as human, especially African-Americans. Um, and I think they don't see their humanity. And I think that's the biggest issue uh, in policing. And it's also the history of policing as well. Right. In, in dealing with this issue, how important also, or the right after, in, 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 in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter movement and the protests uh, as you point out in the book, um, many, many millions of white people joined these protests uh, all over the country. It really did change the dynamic, didn't it? I mean, I know a lot of people criticize that this is just, you know, they're, they're burning down the cities, they're looting, the whole thing. But that was not the full story, for sure, not even part of this. No, but I mean, we have to distinguish between protesters and rioters. Yeah. And listen, it, it is unfortunate, but there are always going to be people who take advantage uh, of situations, right? People who mingle in with the legitimate protesters and people who are just out for themselves and people who are bad actors. And that should not be tolerated. Right. And those people should face the consequences as well. Um, but yes, and if you, if, you know, going before I answer your question about the, the about, you know, about the white folks who are out there, look at the number of people when we're talking about complacency, the number of people who supported Black Lives Matter during the George Floyd, during the height of that, when George Floyd first died. And then now the support has dwindled, right? Same people become complacent. They try to rationalize things. But yeah, I think having white people out there as allies really made a huge difference um, because it showed the world, especially older people who may, have be, who may be steeped in tradition and in old ways of thinking about, well, why are they out there doing this? Why are they rabble rousing? Why are they shaking the apple cart? Shouldn't they just comply? The situation is, isn't that bad. It showed them, you know, those young folks out there, most of them young, white folks showed their parents or their grandparents that, hey, this isn't right. And we're standing up for our fellow citizens, um, this time who happen to be black, but I believe those same kids, those same young folks of all ethnicities would be out there for other people who are facing inequities uh, and I think it's time that people got out and, and do some protesting about our Asian brothers and sisters who are facing anti-Asian hate. 
Um, so yeah, I believe it did make a huge difference. It does make a huge difference having allies. Um, and I, and I, I think we need to listen to those young people. They're trying to pull us not necessarily into the future, but into the now <laughs> because they're tired of dealing with discrimination and they're tired of their fellow citizens, uh, being treated unequally in society. Right. Um, in terms of racism, how could you not? Who could not, especially if you're a young person? I know it was tough. We're in the middle of a pandemic, but young people feel like they're, you know, immortal. Of course. <laughs> we we now I think about my mortality every day as I talk to my mom and say, and she'll say, oh, you know, such and such passed. And I drove by Miss Whatever's house and it's not there anymore. I didn't know she died. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm getting so old. But young, how young if we were all sitting in our homes, Bill, vulnerable because we we're in the middle of a pandemic. We were on lockdown and quarantine and we had nowhere to go, but we all we could do was watch this man die with a knee on his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. That We were all so vulnerable because we didn't know where we were going, if we were going to be sick, if our loved ones were going to die, if they were going to catch COVID, all of those things. So it made us open. It was a great equalizer. It made us open and vulnerable and empathetic. And so the young folks felt that and they got out there and they went on the streets and they fought. The people, the older people at home did what they could do. And they were basically outraged by it. So I think, yes, the young people helped, but it also the timing and what was going on in the country also helped to draw attention to, to the suffering and to the inequality. And for today's podcast, as a sponsor, I want to direct you to the great organization, Fair Fight. You know, uh, essential to dealing with racism in this country is making sure that every American has an equal right to vote. And there are many efforts underway in at least 47 states today to suppress the vote, especially to suppress the vote of black Americans. Fair Fight is an organization started by Stacey Abrams in Georgia back in 2018 when she was cheated out of the governorship of Georgia. But now that organization is active nationwide uh, fighting voter suppression efforts uh, in all the states. They need your help. There's no more important cause than to protect the right to vote. So I encourage you to check out Fair Fight at fairfight.com and lend them for your full support. They can tell you how to get involved in your state and what you have to be fighting for to protect wherever you live in the United States. Fairfight.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. 
you should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Is the first step toward, deal, to, toward dealing for all of us uh, with systemic racism to acknowledge that systemic racism does exist, that we are basically still a racist society? Of course, it is. A simple answer. But the real thing that is uh, in order to deal with it is that we're going to have to deal with the history of the country. It's going to have to be taught in schools, in an elementary school, and not just in 1492, Columbus saw the ocean blue and how dis- Columbus discovered America. We're gonna have to talk about the people of color uh, who, were, oh, who came over before the Mayflower bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people who we're, we're gonna have to um, show as much respect and reverence for people who came over on slave ships who helped to build the country for free as we do for the people who came over on the Nina, the Pinta and the Santa Maria or the Mayflower. And, and until we teach that part of our history and other parts of our history, um, that uh, other parts of, of history that have to deal with people of color and especially black people, people from African nations, then we're gonna continue to have um, people who deny systemic racism. We're gonna continue to have insurrections on our capital. We're gonna, have pe- we're gonna continue to have people who can be co-opted uh, by a person or people who uh, lie about elections being stolen by people who live in large urban areas, meaning black and brown people. So that's how I think we're going to deal with it. So the 1619 Project is right on? I think the 1619 Project is right on. I think that uh, there's not one or the other. You can talk about um, 1776. You can talk about the founding of this country, if you want to put it in those terms. I don't think of it as, as founding. Um, or if you want, you know, the, uh, uh, the drawing up of the documents to colonize the country. Okay, fine. We can talk about that. But I think they're all, they're all legitimate. And I think there are things to learn even beyond the 1619 Project. Um, and there are things that I learned about history in, in researching this book that I didn't know about, the, uh, that I write about the German Coast Uprising uh, in Louisiana. Things that you don't hear about the, the struggle and the history of black people, the history that is used to elevate white people and to uh, denigrate or diminish black people. And of course, there are some people who hear that and think that's sort of undermining America, right? Uh, undermining the greatness of America and the revolution. No, I think that's what makes America great. That is what really makes America great is being able to own all of that. And in spite of all that, we're still the greatest nation on earth, the greatest democracy. And um, until we realize that there, that there were many, many different people who contributed to the beginning and to the founding and to the promise of this country of, to build a more perfect union. And until we realize that, then we won't reach our greatness and our potential. Yeah. So what do you say, to, what, event, what can anybody say to a guy like uh, Lindsey Graham, who said on Fox News a week or so ago, um, I was looking forward to our interview when I saw Lindsey Graham say, there's no systemic racism in this country. After all, we elected Barack Obama and Kamala Harris. Yeah. Uh, What do I say to him? I should say to him to stop uh, pandering to uh, his constituents that he wants to vote for him. Stop um, um, 
exploiting the fear of those people because he knows that's where that fear comes from, that um, they are no longer going to have a preeminent voice and that black and brown and, uh, and other marginalized people are taking over the country. And in some way, the country is going to change fundamentally because of it. Lindsey Graham knows that. So he is um, what he's doing is pandering to a certain group of people and he's exploiting quite frankly, their fear and their ignorance. And he, he should be ashamed of himself because he knows better. What he should be doing as a leader is trying to educate people and trying to get them to understand that if you develop relationships, if you take care of each other as countrymen, then you have no need to fear black people or brown people or Asian people or any other person who is other than white in this country. That's what he should be saying. How badly did Donald Trump set back uh, the movement or the progress that we have made? Well, I think Donald Trump, I think he set back people's thinking in the moment. And I think that it, I think history, I think the future is going to show us how, uh, how much he's done. So I think that what, what Donald Trump did, and, you know, I'm sure, you know, most people ask me about when I, about in the book where I said he's a president that we, uh, deserved and and um, probably the one that we needed. Right, um, right. Because he exposed the racism that was lying just beneath the surface for white people. For black people, the racism was already there. We knew we didn't live in a post-racial um, society. So I think he, what he did was um, ex he, he legitimized the hatred and the racism and the bigotry from people who were susceptible to that. And for others who fight against the, those kinds of things and who know better, then what he did was he, um, he caused us to dig in deeper to fight for a better way and to fight for, for equity and equality for everyone. So, you know, yeah, he divided the country, but what he did was I think he showed us who we are and if you're a person who cares about other people and who care about all people and that and that all people deserve the same rights in the society, then that cemented that part of you. And if you didn't, if you were looking for an excuse and you were saying, my God, they're taking over and they're changing our country, then he legitimized that for use. So the future will tell us what that division actually means. So to that extent, I was I was struck too when you write that um, it, this is the this is the president. The, the, that we needed at that time for the reasons you just pointed out, right? Not because yeah. such a great policy genius or something, but no. Right? No, I, listen, and, and with that, you know, maybe I should have written, and I think I did write something to that extent, but, but uh, I should, maybe I could have been clearer and said that I and most people would have preferred a different experience, right? Mm -hmm. But because we um, place uh, such a premium on celebrity, that's what got us there. Because we place um, such a premium on having um, our beliefs reinforced, that's how we got Donald Trump. Because we place such a premium on money and wealth, that's how we got Donald Trump. And perhaps um, our priorities need to change. So when I say the president we, we deserved and probably the one we needed, that's what I mean by that. So we hear so much about white supremacists. We see uh, the evidence of the white supremacists on January 6th and down in uh, Charlottesville and, um, and many other places. Is there, 
did you find or do you see that there's more white supremacy today or that it's just more public? Maybe. He became the imprimatur for white supremacists, right? Yeah. So um, here's the thing. Um, as I think some people were watching that day and they were clutching their pearls on January 6th saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe it was happening. For many of us who were especially the journalists of color who are out there and our allies, um, our white allies who are saying, this is all racism. This is racism, pure and simple. This whole Trump movement is racism. You may say that um, ev that all Trump supporters aren't racist. Well, if you aren't, then you certainly overlooked it. You didn't. You place. You didn't place a priority on racism. You prioritized other things besides that. And so, the insurrection was just a culmination and proof of that. It was like one plus one equals two, <laughs> and the one plus one, the number two, was the insurrection. And so when people saw all of those people on, on the Capitol calling police officers the N-word, saying that the, um, this country is made for us and that it was stolen, beating police officers with Blue Lives Matter flags and the American flag, then you realize that everything that they stood for, they said they stood for was bunk. They didn't support law enforcement. They didn't respect the flag because they were using it for violence. And they certainly didn't respect police, the black police officers who they were calling the N-word. And how many people of color did you see out there? Very, very few, yeah. if any, who actually entered the Capitol. So um, I think that, you know, black people were sitting at home and I know I was like, see, there you go. <laughs> there, I mean, it was bound to happen because you didn't believe us when we said it's racist. You denied it. You said, I'm not racist. I'm sick of you're a race baiter. I'm sick of you calling me racist. Well, there's the proof in living color. How's Joe Biden doing and changing the tone and... Um maybe getting back to the real issues and dealing with them? I think he's doing a great job at it, quite honestly. I think it, it may not be, uh, you know, he's not, he's not razzle-dazzle. <laughs> right. We've had razzle-dazzle and okay, razzle-go-dazzle, razzle, be dazzled, <laughs> but goodbye. Um, we need some, we need change. We need, we need to see the, we need receipts. And so far we're seeing the receipts even against all the hesitation that is out there, against all the resistance that's out there, against all the Mitch McConnells who, who are saying their number one agenda is to make sure that Biden's agenda doesn't get passed. People are getting vaccinated. They are a lot more in the beginning. Now there's a lot of hesitancy. And of course, Trump supporters aren't gonna do it because they, they think it's a slap in the face, right? Or, or it's not real, but it is happening to the extent, and, and probably to a better extent than people thought about. The economy is turning around. Uh, we had one bad jobs report, but let's see what, what happens with the next one. He is getting help to Americans, regardless of how you feel about it. He is ignoring the noise, quite frankly, on cable news every night, <laughs> and from the Republicans in Congress and the Senate who don't wanna work for him, and guess what? He's like blinders on, he just keeps policy, and he keeps doing his work, and that is admirable. And he's not doing it by being on Twitter every day, by being on television every day, by saying how great he is, that he knows better than the generals. He is a gentleman and a professional, and it is so refreshing to see that in the Oval Office, competency. But I do have to say, I hope he doesn't spend, he doesn't, he doesn't appear to be spending that much time. Uh, his, his definition of bipartisanship appears to be at this moment, 
uh, bipartisanship in the country, meaning not in Washington, D.C., yeah. not the people there. I hope he doesn't spend too much time trying to get Republicans to like him and work with him because he should have learned. Hopefully he learned from the Obama administration that that I don't believe it's ever going to happen. It would be great if it did. I don't think it will. I second your point. And I think uh, Joe Biden is willing to at least try for bipartisanship. But right. if they don't come along, then damn it, we'll do it without you. Right. Yeah. So yep, I agree. Full speed ahead, uh, which I like that too. I started to say you end with a uh, a real message of hope, right? Uh, and, and again, if I can, just um, I'm going back to page 195 here. Uh, I know you've got your copy there too. Yeah. Where you express that um, so strongly. We are capable of releasing the burden of racism. We're capable of dialogue that fosters intersectional alliances. We're capable of, capable of educating future generations with self-honesty and shared humanity. We are capable of intelligent, organized activism that pushes toward a common goal. So you really there, it's a, I think you use a word, we all have to become agents of change, right? Yeah. And you're confident yeah. that, that we can, what, what is that hope based on, given our <laughs> 250 years history of the opposite? Bill, I answer it in the next thing. I said, we can be simultaneously fearless about our future and truthful about our past. So what that means is, is that we have to establish relationships with each other. It means that Don Lemon, a black man from the South, and Bill Press, a white man from, where are you from, Bill? Hey, from Delaware. From Delaware. From Delaware can have conversations like this. Once, once we're both uh, fully vaccinated, and I hope you are, I am, I am, that we can actually go sit and have a beer or um, a, a, a coffee and talk about these issues and earnestly, honestly talk about these issues and um, hold each other to account, but also give each other some grace in the conversation. So I think that it, we, when I, that it's not just one, one person against the other. Right. That the that how we're going to do this is is if we see each other's humanity and in order to see each other's humanity, you must have a relationship with people. And I think that's the only way. And you must have you must see other people's humanity and you must care about other people. If you don't care about them, then it's easy to put your knee on their neck for nine minutes and twenty nine seconds. That's why that's how I believe. That's why I'm optimistic. Right. And you end with a note of optimism, which, of course, and James Baldwin does, too. So again, you come together there yeah, uh, yeah. at the end of the book. Uh, Don, you've been very generous with your time. I know we've got a show tonight. Uh, I don't want to take too much more, but we have a few questions that will come in from uh, our, knowing we were recording this from our uh, regular audience, you might uh, entertain a couple oh, of sure. questions. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, first is, so what was your nephew's reaction when he read your letter? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Quite honestly, he's like, oh, that's cool, Uncle Don. He's 13. Uh, and here's the, here's the thing. He's, he was 13 years old when it happened. And um, usually he, they come up for the summer and spend a couple of weeks with me. And I wasn't able to physically have him up last summer. And so rather than I don't, you know, run and I don't like I do hug him. But and I say I love you, but I don't like call him up and say, hey, I love you, whatever, because then he'd be like, Uncle Don, that's weird. I got to go play my video game. So I got to go back to Fortnite. So I, I think that he's a 13 year old boy and his reaction is like, oh, that's kind of cool that I'm in, the, in a book. But I think he really won't understand it until he matures and becomes a, a bit older. Right. Um, another question about an effort that has gotten a lot of attention. 
from um, African-American CEOs like Kenneth Chenault and Kenneth Fraser, who have really organized other CEOs um, to oppose what's going on in state after state with efforts to uh, suppress the vote. Your take on that. That was another reason I didn't mention that I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic because um, we live in a capitalist society. And um, the moment you start to affect people's pocketbooks is when you get their attention. And so I think people like Ken Chenault and other CEOs, and just other, other CEOs, not necessarily of color, but just around the country, who realize um, that they must represent not only their employees and their company and their stockholders, but for the people who buy their products or who view their products or who are buying other products because of their products, like at, at sports, if you, if, you, if you know what I mean. So I'm optimistic that there are enough people who are of right mind out here, and I don't mean right politically, but mm -hmm. who want this country to move forward and not backwards to a time when people didn't have equity and equality, that they will be able to, quite honestly, affect um, companies' pocketbooks where they do the right thing and organizations where they do the right thing. That's how you get people's attention. And you know, I write about that in the book as well, when I talk about movies and monuments and and that it was all, it's in the chapter all about the Benjamins. Right. So it, yeah. um, that, that effort on the part of, you know, it's Georgia, it's Texas, it's Florida, it's Arizona. Um, again, that's a, more of a manifestation of a racist society where they believe, they see people of color as uh, denying them <laughs> electability, I guess. Right? Yeah, denying them not only electability, but denying them, again, racism and discrimination is about denying rights. It was Jim Crow. It was denying rights. So now you're denying people the right to vote or the ease to vote, or even in, 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 in many instances, the facilities to vote, the agency to vote. So if there is not a drop box near where you are, it's, you don't have an ease, you don't have a facility to vote. If, there, if you are um, closing polling places in, in certain areas, again, same thing. If you're restricting hours, limiting hours and restricting hours, same thing. If you're not wanting people to vote on Sunday or take souls to the polls or give people food or water in line, all of those things is a, a, is a denial in a way of the ease and the right to be able to cast your ballot. Uh, your book was reviewed in the uh, Washington Post. Again, I should do this more often. Uh, see, I need to learn a lot from you, Don, that our guest is Don Levin. His book is This is the Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism. The uh, review in the Washington Post, a little bit snarky, I thought, when uh, Trey Johnson says, quote, Lemon goes to great pains to make the case for black justice, racial progress, and a re-examination re of where we've been and are going. But I couldn't help thinking that if it takes almost 200 pages to convince my friends of this, I need new friends. Well, if we, um, if we listen, I think that is a very simplistic view, a, 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 a simplistic way to, um, to think about it. I didn't um, see that review, I should. Uh, I uh, believe it or not, I don't read my own press, <laughs> but uh, good, I think good that, man, smart man. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't believe that. And I do think that, you know, also with reviewers, there's everyone has their motivations. And so you should be able to, uh, to, you know, you, you understand what I'm saying about right. that. So I don't, I hadn't heard, I actually, actually didn't read that one, but let me just say this. Um, 
I'm not trying to convince anyone of anything so that the, the whole premise is wrong. What I'm trying to do is get you to understand my point of view, and I'm trying to get you to have conversations that you may not have anywhere else. And so, um, you know, I, again, I'm not trying to convince my friends of anything, but if you can get people to understand something who may not understand it, if you can move people along the spectrum who may be, uh, if you can move people a little bit further along the spectrum in the right direction, then I don't see anything wrong with trying to move them along and trying to convince them. Mm -hmm. And so um, I have friends who are, who have been more open to the possibility and understanding what it's like to be and live in black skin after what happened to George Floyd than ever before. More than ever before, they're more interested in it. So if it takes 200 pages to try to convince them and to bring them to the right side, I'm completely okay with that, even if it takes a thousand pages. Uh, and this question uh, from uh, one of our listeners, is there anything we can do to get police to quit stopping our black males like my son because they quote, fit the description? Is there anything that we can do? Right. Uh, I think that it's gonna, we're gonna have to, um, we're gonna have to have some policing reform. We're gonna have to, you um, start hiring police officers who represent the community, who live in the community, who understand the community. Uh, we are going to have to, I don't believe, as I write in the book, uh, in the slogan, defund the police, because I think it, it, is, um, it only gives your detractors ammunition to, um, and it doesn't help win over any allies. But that doesn't believe that I don't believe in what defund the police and, and many of the things that they stand for. Uh, many, I should say many of the things that they are proposing. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that we're going to have to take a good hard look at policing and that may be purging of a lot of police departments and changing the structure of those departments and how we use policing and what the actual roles, roles of police are in our society. Uh, and finally, an off the wall question, then we'll let you go. So um, what's it like? Here's a question that came. What's it like doing a nightly TV show Without Donald Trump. <laughs> um, it, it is, um, it's actually more interesting. I'm actually more excited about my job. Um, I'm happier going to work. I'm more connected. Uh, and I'm more passionate about what I do than because than when he was in office because each night, as you know, when you came on the show for the last four years, it was going to be something that was Trump-related. Yeah. And that's not necessarily so now. Now I get to talk about policy. Now I get to talk about uh, what's working and what's not working uh, when it comes to the stimulus packages for our fellow citizens. Uh, what's working and not working when it comes to how we're trying to get people vaccinated in the country. What's working and not working when it comes to health care. Um, how we're going to... Um, deal with childcare and, uh, and infrastructure rather than um, having an infrastructure week every month or every other month where we only got a photo op of it and the president getting in an 18 wheeler and doing this and blowing, pretending he's uh, honking a horn. We're actually talking about how we, do we see infrastructure as traditionally as roads and bridges or do we see it in terms of 
Wi-Fi for everyone, especially for rural communities, and um, and how and and how we get uh, oil and gas and electricity um, to uh, on the grid to people so that they don't have to deal with what Texas had to deal with just a couple of months back in winter. We're actually talking about how to move America forward rather than toxicity, the toxicity of the Trump administration every day and the division. Refreshing. It's great. I love going to work. Right. Refreshing change. Uh, a lot it, less it a lot less BS to deal with. Right? Yeah. We actually have to think about like, hey, what are we going to do today? Wow, there's so much to talk about that that actually is really important to people and their lives and that makes a difference in people's lives instead of palace intrigue. Amen. Again, Don Lemon, the book, This is the Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism. Don, I learned a lot from it. I was inspired by it, motivated by it. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity, and I'd love to come back, and I hope to see you on my show. All right. We'll do that, and uh, have a good show tonight. See you later. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks, Don. And that's it for today's podcast with Don Lemon. There's a link to buy the book, The Fire, next time on the episode notes of today's podcast. encourage you to do so. It's a great book, a very, very important message, and some very practical things that all of us can do uh, to deal with this problem of systemic racism in America. So again, thanks for being with us today. Uh, We'll give you a good long week and then come back at the end of the week for our roundtable with three top Washington reporters to look back on the big news of the week in Washington and around the country. Meanwhile, take care of yourself. Be good, be strong, be safe. We'll see you on Friday with the Bill Press Pod Roundtable.